Ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon and welcome to this uh, session of the LSE Literary Festival 2016. Um, and I, together with I, Angus Wren, together with my colleague Dr. Olga Sobolev from the Language Centre at LSE, um, are going to present this session on utopian literature, which I think is appropriate because we teach literature at LSE very much in the context of politics and history, and indeed a course which we teach jointly, Olga from Russia, I from the West, on um, the Cold War and political events of the 20th century, where utopia, the idea of it, which really starts in this place because of the Fabians in many ways, um, and also uh, dystopia, the actual way that political regimes developed in the, second, in the first in the first few decades of the 20th century, is um, a central theme. So I think that's our justification for uh, being assigned this session, perhaps. But we're extremely grateful today that we've got, um, one, I think, one of the leading experts in, on this genre in terms of literary studies, Professor Patrick Parinder in the centre here, and um, also two of our leading <coughs> contemporary novelists, uh, Samantha Shannon, our end, and uh, Toby Litt next to me. Um, Toby's uh, produced several novels, which, one of which is a full-fledged uh, sort of science fiction, utopian journey, dystopian journey, uh, but other works where you've gone into many other genres. And uh, Samantha, you've made your uh, start in your career very much with works in the dystopian uh, genre. So I think I'd like to start off by just asking, what is it that's special about uh, dystopia from your own, perhaps Samantha, to start? Thank you. Um, I think for me it's about the the potential for a dystopia to provide extremes for characters to go to. So the characters, when you're, you know, they're always at, at risk, to, there's a risk to their life, there's a risk to their sanity, there's all kinds of risks, and that means that you can take characters further than you could, for example, if they were just, I don't know, hanging about at school. Um, so that's kind of primarily why I'm drawn towards it. And just, I guess, guess just the general potential for... I combine my dystopia with fantasy, and I've found it so fascinating constructing a world that's kind of, um, you know, dystopian and fantastical at the same time. Because in a way, fantasy and dystopia are doing quite opposite things. Um, mm. A dystopia has to be realistic enough that the reader's sort of frightened by it and can see it in the real world. Um, whereas fantasy is kind of trying to take you out of the real world. So I guess it's kind of the challenge for me was bringing those two genres together. But the primary thing that attracted me to it was its effect on characters. So it sounds slightly like a sort of experiment, an experiment as a, an undertaking writing in this genre, is it? Yeah, kind of. I mean, my books are quite experimental in terms of genre. Like, I, I tend to mix genres, and it's a seven-book series, and each book within those seven books is dystopian, but they also play with different genres within that. So the first one is kind of a jailbreak, second one's kind of a murder mystery third one is more revolutionary um, and I'm kind of trying to play with different genres so it is quite experimental it's kind of me just I I just love kind of breaking the limits of genre and mixing them and just generally kind of subverting the reader's expectation. So within the overall umbrella term definitely variety in terms of the different volumes yeah, of, no, of the I series as it evolves. Yes. Yeah, and no, I think it does. I think dystopia gives lots of potential for combining with others, and yes. I'm just I'm really enjoying kind of doing that as I go along. And Toby, um, for you, what's special or unique and distinctive about utopia and dystopia? Um, hello, thank you for coming. Uh, I think the two things that I've written that would come under that banner, uh, the closest I would say to Utopia was a novel called Hospital and the reason that that was 
utopian in a sense is that it's a hospital building that at midnight is cut off from the rest of the universe and people cease to die in it. In fact, they start to regenerate, but not only that, anything that has the potential of reaching its sort of mature form does. So um, a pine cone on someone's desk starts to become redwood trees uh, in the middle of the building and the, the biological specimens in jars firstly reanimate and then they uh, come back to life but in, in full form so you get bodies sort of massed in flesh and it's a vision of the resurrection really um, but s- society collapses because without mortality there's no basis for any kind of correct behaviour so it's, it's meant to be a dystopian novel in that sense, but, but in about eight hours and in one building. Um, and I think sometimes what I'm actually attracted to is writing submarine novels, where, <laughs> where but wreckers must breathe, where you isolate the characters in a, in a sort of uh, hermetically sealed contraption of some sort and then put them under stress. And that was what uh, Journey into Space was about, which is, which is a science fiction novel. Not that far future, but, but when humanity gets to the point of being able to send a spacecraft that's fast enough to reach another habitable planet within, uh, say, eight generations. Yeah. Um, but when I started doing that, and when I, when I told people I was doing it, they said, all oh, right, that's a generation ship novel. So it's not just a science fiction novel, it's a generation ship novel. And then, then they said... Uh, so what kind of drive does your ship use? And then there, so you do a generation ship build, then it's a generation ship with a warp drive, or then it's a generation ship with, you know. And um, in a sense, it came also within the genre that you could call mundane SF, which was the idea that you don't do anything that breaks the laws of physics because that's fantasy. Mm-hmm. So that I, I kind of guesstimated how fast are we going to be able to go ever? Let's say we could go a quarter of the speed of light. That's quite ambitious, but we, it's not the speed of light, and it's not um, you know, what you need in, in Star Wars universe. So then it gave me a chance to do four generations on the ship, but it's, it's, it's more dystopian than utopian. Yeah, indeed. And um, I, I think H.G. Wells would applaud your concern with the scientific details like the speed of light. <laughs> um, Patrick, I was wondering, this idea of science, is science absolutely central to dystopia, utopia, do you, do you feel? Or do you think it can exist without a scientific component? Um, in the modern world, yes, science clearly is central to utopia. I was thinking of the title of this session, actually, which I must say I thought was a tiny bit supercilious at first reading, you know, utopia getting somewhere or going nowhere. (laughs) Uh, But actually, um, that perhaps inadvertently, neatly sums up the difference between what I would call the modern utopia, which is the scientific utopia, which is set in the future, which is always based on some form of scientific advance on our own time, And the classical utopia, which, of course, as we know, the word means nowhere. It is a nowhere. It's usually an undiscovered island. It's in the present. It's not in the future. Uh, The the classical utopian fiction, they're not always seen as as novels, really, as a kind of philosophical um, exercise, or maybe it's a satire on our own time. The modern utopia is usually propaganda fiction, uh, 
And most modern utopia, I'm talking about the late 19th, 20th century, uh, maybe the 21st, I think it's too early to talk about utopia in the 21st century, perhaps. There doesn't seem to be a lot of it around. Oh, but you see, that, Dystopian, but, we can but certainly that's talk why about. I brought this along. Can uh-huh. I neatly, can yeah, I neatly yeah, do, go into yeah, my prepared yeah. bit? <laughs> Some of you may be excited. This is Don DeLillo's new novel. No, no excitement in the room. <laughs> America's leading, America's greatest living writer, according to The Observer. Um, and uh, the, the, the cover says, um, the gods have equipped DeLillo with the antennae of a visionary, Martin Amos. So he's credited with seeing the future quite often. But I would say this is a utopian novel. And I prepared a little something to say about it because it, it's, it says my thoughts about trying to write utopia now. I wonder what I was going to talk about. I hadn't, like you, read any convincingly utopian novels recently. Then I was sent Don DeLillo's new novel, Zero K. It's a very powerful contemporary but almost sci-fi take on utopia. On the back of Zero K, it says at the bottom, not for sale or quotation. (laughs) Screw that. (laughs) I won't sell it to you for any money because I want to reread it, but I will risk quotation and unless... Picador have their spies here, I should get away with them. I'm very grateful to Picador for sending me this because it allows me to make a few observations about the difficulties of writing Utopia today. Um, I'll give you a summary. Zero K is a novel about Jeffrey Lockhart, son of a billionaire financier, Ross Lockhart, whose second wife, that's Jeffrey's stepmother, has a terminal illness. At the beginning of Zero K, Jeffrey travels by private jet to a site in the former Soviet Union where a cryogenic program is putting billionaires and others who can afford it into high-tech storage cryogenically in anticipation of the medical advances that will bring them back to life at some point in the uncertain future. Reanimate them, cured, younger, improved and possibly with a little continuity of self with those who went into storage. Jeffrey is sceptical about the project, whose spokespeople are two brothers who he nicknames the Stenmarks. Um, the Stenmarks, most, everyone in a DeLillo novel talks like someone in a DeLillo novel. They all make uh, these uh, ep- epigrammatic statements. Uh, the utopian nature of the cryogenic project called the Convergence and the minimalist art project complex in which it takes place are emphasised a number of times. Here's where I'm going to get myself into trouble by quoting it. It is a space that was anonymous, nowhere or when. So that's the utopia nowhere thing. Participants are told... You are completely outside the narrative of what we refer to as history. Jeffrey, the hero, asks himself, as do all those witnessing utopians going about their business, you know, the, the stranger who comes to Utopia and reports back, he asks himself, were these people deranged or were they at the forefront of a new consciousness? That seems to me the essential question that someone visiting a Utopia is, is going to ask, or a Utopian community anywhere. One of the arguments within the novel is that, quote, technology has become a force of nature. Another, that, quote, life everlasting belongs to those of breathtaking wealth. This is within the context, and a final quote here, half the world is redoing its kitchens, the other half is starving. Great line, tweet it and I'll get into real shit. (laughs) 
My observations stated uh, partly as questions. Novels are often about people to whom new things happen. That's one of the reasons they're novel. That's why they're called novels. And to whom do new experiences happen now? Is it today only to those of breathtaking wealth that new experiences happened? Have we been fully convinced of that? Has DeLillo been convinced of that? His recent fiction rarely centres around people who have to struggle to get enough to eat. Beggars, uh, the DeLillo narrative, the typical DeLillo narrative, you think of Cosmopolis, the rich, handsome guy in the back of a limo, takes place far away from subsistence. Beggars inhabit this novel, um, but they're not characters. Like E.M. Forster, DeLillo has nothing to do with the poor who are always with us. They're, They're not his business. The disempowerment of the very unwealthy, socially and culturally, means they are no longer associated with newness, as they were, say, in the 1840s or the 1960s. If you can't afford an iPhone, how can you be an early adopter of anything? If you can't code, how can you create a world-shaking app? Utopia frequently is presented in fiction and in social theory not as a state of achieved social universal justice but the creation of a gated community within which we are all one day to be safely locked rather than, I would say as it used to be, an abolition of a social inside and outside Utopia of the extremely costly sort we see in the novel depends entirely on insideness, financially on versions of insider trading, architecturally on walls of exclusion and nationally also on border walls. Utopia, DeLillo lets some of his characters articulate, is now and in our world, it is already there, it's just not yet trickled down to the rest of us from the billionaire level. (laughs) zero k is at the same time a great achievement of the imagination and a failure of the imagination it presents a neoliberal vision of utopia then attempts to collapse it its social imagination is nowhere near as vast as a utopian truly utopian vision needs to be but in truth i see no one else who has come as close to setting out the terms of the debate thank you very apt i think some of those phrases there about what's it life everlasting belonging to great yeah. wealth and the real dystopia being the gated community yes I mean well, could I comment on that I mean uh, what you said at the end um, is it a great achievement of the imagination or a failure of the imagination is the kind of critique we can almost always make of utopias it seems to me I mean people complain that um, you read a utopia and everybody is happy well that's what a utopia is about but equally, um, as readers, reading about people who claim to be happy, who think, you know, we're very quick to suspect self-deception in descriptions of the happiness of others. second thing I, I picked out was, um, and this goes to all the questions about post-humanity and so on, were these people deranged or at the forefront of a new consciousness? One could well ask that about your character, yes. I guess. Um, and is it, is it possible actually to, describe, to present a totally new consciousness in fiction? Can we present the post-human in fiction? Doesn't the post-human always become 
much more human than it should be. I mean, I, I don't think this is a new problem. You find it in, um, certainly in early 20th century, I mean, um, Chapek's Robots is a classical example, you know, his play R.U.R. Uh, it's about robots. But robots on the stage are going to be represented by human actors. So how can you possibly, etc., etc.? But, but I don't think that's just a problem of theatre. I think it's a problem of any kind of narrative, isn't it? That narration will humanise the supposedly post or non-human. I don't know what you think about but that. In, in your case, Samantha, there's an, although you have an underclass, they are in some ways are highly empowered, aren't they, because of the types of people they... Yeah, oh. I mean, I was just picking up on um, on, on that point, actually, because I, I also... My, my books are pretty weird. They're basically about clairvoyance in the future, but there's also supernatural creatures um, who are a puppet government. Um, it does make sense, I promise. Um, <laughs> but, <laughs> but, um, no, but it's, it's interesting because when I was... A lot of readers have asked me if I would ever tell a story from the perspective of one of the supernatural creatures, and I've mm. always said no because they're mm. immortal and they're not human. So I feel that in my writing I can never represent their experience because it will always humanise them. So I've always, you know, I tried, I tried to do a very small section of my next book where I sort of describe one of their memories, but I had to do it in quite a sort of a fragmented, mm. weird way in order to try and make it look quite odd. And I think if I did that on a, on a large scale it would just seem quite gimmicky. So I'm, by, I'm just not looking at their minds, basically, in order to... Um, in order to sort of not humanise them. But yeah, I mean, my underclass are... I mean, the main character, Paige, she is uh, the daughter of a government official, but she's also chosen to work within the clairvoyant underclass in London. Um, And she's done that because, you know, her father is not clairvoyant and he doesn't know that she is, and she feels that she has to work in that environment in order to find people who are like her. Um, so she is kind of a kind of an economic crossroads in the book in a way, you know. And she she works also for one of the richer uh, bosses in the clairvoyant underworld. Um, but I wanted her to have kind of a very strong sense of justice. So she is she is driven to help those who are in a worse position than she is, and she feels kind of a certain degree of guilt as well that she sort of turns her back on that life with her father. Um, mm-hmm. So yeah, I mean, it's it's not I mean, money is is. It, it's, it was never kind of intended as my key concern in the books, but I have found that um, in the next book it's more about a revolution. And I was, I was, I've always been interested in kind of stuff like, you know, where do people get the money from for a revolution? Like, you know, in the Hunger Games, I was like, yeah, but where are they getting the money from to get, you know, what, you know what's, what's, how's this all happening? So I did want to look at that a little bit. In the That's next the way book. we study books here. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> We're turning yeah. out our hedge fund managers. Yeah, but no, I am, I am interested and things like that and you know how Paige is going to sort of get the money to go against the government who are clearly significantly richer than she is <laughs> so. Indeed yes. Speaking about uh, well, this commu- community in which we are going to be locked in the future I have a question to, uh, to Patrick Do you think H.G. Wells got it right? And has, uh, because it, it looks like he actually missed the point uh, no. What do you think? <laughs> I mean, you, you know, are we speaking here about the H.G. Wells who said, you know, it's who, all over? Who, who, no, who painted, who who painted all these, all in the, the world machine, state. The world, yes. The world's, yeah, yeah. Um, it doesn't look much like it at the moment. Exactly. And, so uh, that's why I'm asking. <laughs> <laughs> You're responsible for him now. 
Well, you see, um, it's Oscar Wilde, isn't it, who, who says that utopia is a country at which humanity is always landing, and we might think he made a mistake there and should have said dystopia. Um, dystopia is all around us. Utopia, I think, is, um, you know, uh, we have to have some horizon which takes us out of the ghastly situations in which collectively we find ourselves as a world, as you know, previous human worlds have also done. And utopia provides that, and actually always has done. I mean, if you go back to the origins of certainly Western thought, ethics and politics in Plato and Aristotle, the idea of utopia and the idea of, if you like, organized happiness is at the center of all attempts to define um, the basis of ethics and the basis of political theory. And, I mean, I, I think... Um, you know, you can make fun of any modern utopian, certainly Wells' world state. Um, it got the nearest it's had to um, realisation was probably through the foundation of the United Nations, which happened just about the time of his death. Uh, and we know that hasn't got very far. It's got somewhere, but it seems to be receding and so on. But Wells is just in this tradition of trying to give us some wider horizon that, you know, we have to build ideals on and try to construct a future. How much does possibly getting it wrong matter, Toby? <laughs> uh-huh. um, my, I, I'm not a big fan of Philip Roth, but he there's a sentence in American Pastoral, which is about as far as I've ever got, where he said something like, being human isn't about getting people right it's about getting them wrong and then on, on closer consideration looking at them more and more and thinking harder about it and then getting them wrong again and I, th- I, I think that it's the wrongness that, that um, makes something kind of pungent to its time and obviously I think uh, Wells was writing in a time when the idea of political theory tied in with a greater possibility of achieving things collectively and I think that the current uh, lack of faith in that is uh, is a crucial element so I, I think in the sense asking where does the money come from for a revolution is absolutely the wrong question <laughs> but it's absolutely I mean I wish I was Zizek let's go into my Zizek I've got to kind of rub my face and the thing is you don't need any fucking money for a revolution you steal the money you steal everything you need well, if you steal weapons yeah. 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 But, but, but the fact the fact is that um, it's not a it's not a kind of Lenin Question, which is how do you make the revolution happen? Well, you make it happen through people organising themselves in a radical way that, that takes on the existing power structure. And if you think that you need to finance that, then you've already, you've already lost. You've already given up because, because you'll never have enough money to do it because the revolution's an expensive thing. But the, 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 it's the, the, the Lenin kind of thing is you're borrowing against the future you have in the infinite resources of the future when you achieve utopia and you could almost send that back into the past and go, okay, we're buying against that. Every, every means we need to use to achieve the end because the end will pay for the means 
that we we have now. Oh, the that we need now. The means. Yes, that's that's, and it leads you down lots of dark paths. Yeah. And it's not a question, just a comment, because you mentioned Lenin, but that's what, exactly what they did. I mean, the Bolsheviks, in terms of stealing yeah. money and robbing the banks. So. Yeah. No, I'm speaking. I'm speaking practically. I'm speaking practically. Uh, where, you know, where do you get the barricades from? Well, you don't go to your bank manager and say, can we have some money to build a barricade? So you take what you need, you steal the Mercedes, you park them, you torch them, and then you stand behind them and throw things. That's part of what I do in mine. I mean, the... Um, <laughs> <laughs> <kind of. laughs> No, the tagline from my last book was um, they made thieves of us, time to steal what's ours. So it's kind of like, you know, literally pages trying to bring an army of thieves against the government pretty much. So that's kind of her philosophy. I was going to ask about this question of language. In We were talking about the details of um, getting these novels together while we were waiting for the drink, actually, before we came and it wasn't there. And so I asked you, how did you come up with the drinks that people drink in your world? But, yes. Uh, th- this question of the detail, is that, does it come first or do you have an idea and a, a narrative and then the detail clings to the framework of the narrative? I mean, sometimes I get small ideas for details quite early, but generally it's kind of, it's built on the framework. Like I start off with the seed of an idea. So for this one, I, I was working in London. I just had this idea that, I, you know, what if there was a clairvoyant community in London? And the way I tend to build a world is that I kind of interrogate myself. So I'm like, okay, right, there's clairvoyance in London, but what's going to happen to them? So then, oh, okay, the government could be persecuting them. Great. Why are they persecuting them? Blah, blah, blah. And it just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and then down to fine details like language and drink and, you know, what they're drinking and what bar they're going to and stuff comes a little bit later. Um, but the language side, um, I was inspired by A Clockwork Orange um, mm. to do that. Um, and it's I just I just love so much that Burgess writes in a way that you can just pick up on what the words mean without knowing. Like you know, he'll say my Gulliver hurts, and after mm. a while you understand that Gulliver mm. means head, but he never tells you that. Um, so yeah, I think so that's the way I read it because I'm afraid I forgot to look and see there was a glossary. Nobody so knows I read there's the a glossary. Like, yeah. People always get to the end and they're like, oh my god, I didn't know that. Um, yeah. But yeah, so I kind of um, yeah. mine is it's pretty much based on Victorian slang. Um, which I thought was a lot of fun because this is a world, um, it's an alternate history where in the year 1859 the timeline diverges from ours and now they're in the year 2059. But I thought if I use 1859 as kind of like a launch point for how I was going to build the world because usually I find that with futuristic novels everything gets kind of sleek and everyone's wearing kind of grey sleek outfits and everyone's just, Mm. I don't know, it's just very sleek, it's very polished everything looks very polished and I want to do the total opposite of that, I wanted to do a futuristic world that was colourful and crazy and kind of more like Victorian kind of gangland Dickensian mm. time. Um, so I just thought that would be a fun way to build the world and just make it more, I don't know, just feel a bit grittier, I guess. Yep. On, on that topic, uh, Patrick, actually, this question of science in dystopia, is, is there science as a sort of gleaming machinery and technology or is there science as something you know, genetic and <laughs> more unsettling, perhaps, in that way? Well, both. I mean, you need... Science is a precondition of a utopia nowadays, but science in utopia is disturbing, subversive, and so on. I mean, I I think the classic modern utopia, which we really ought to talk about, because everybody knows it, I'm sure, and it's actually dystopia, of course, is Brave New World. You know, the future world based on science, um, which everybody is happy, or 
thinks they're happy or whatever and fulfilled and so on. Uh, but of course the novel concentrates entirely on the tiny group of um, malcontents. Uh, the, f the four main characters are all the malcontents. Uh, two are dissidents. One is the visitor, you remember from the um, Savage Reservation, John the Savage. And the fourth, who is much the most intelligent of them, is actually the world controller, Mustafa mm. Mond who is an ex-scientist who now finds himself censoring the work of, you know, his ex-colleagues, his, his fellow scientists. Um, he's I, partly a self-projection of Aldous Huxley, I suppose, a kind of um, melancholy intellectual feeling it is his duty to preside over the happiness of the great mass of people which he basically despises. Mm. Yeah. Um, so there is there's a basic question of um, you know whether intelligence and happiness as it were, are compatible um, you know doesn't the critical intelligence always find something wrong with our moments of happiness and, and you know when you do feel happy well you're not aware of your happiness it's usually later isn't it but you're sure are aware when you're unhappy. I think it's Will Self, <laughs> Will Self, author of the Book of Dave, who's imagined a future world where there is the quantum theory of intelligence, isn't it? Where there isn't enough to go round. You know, it's a <laughs> duvet that doesn't quite cover everybody. Um, One can also talk about the, I mean, the basic scientific view of the universe, of course. You know, I mean, the cosmos mm -hmm. in which humanity is such a tiny, temporary, um, little grain of sand in this vast, apparently meaningless universe which we will probably never understand as a full Well, that is clearly not a um, utopian view of ultimate life. It is what you know, the scientific worldview, so-called, would seem to suggest, the nature of the cosmos we live in. Somehow, if we want to believe in utopian ideals, we have to kind of forget about that. You know? uh, forget that we as a species are not going to be here for very long and so on and so forth. Toby, in your narrative, the journey into space, mm. is it halfway through or more than halfway through? It, it becomes a journey home. You just spoil us. It does. Yes, they decide to turn round um, because uh, basically they, they sort of think they're on their own um, and that the only place, the, the only space in the entirety of, of the universe that means anything is Earth. Every, everywhere else is just space, and therefore uh, any travelling in it is sort of meaningless. And so they have kind of collective existential crisis and turn their spaceship round mm. um, and head back. Um, but I, th I think that there is something... Uh, about about the smallness, which I've I've sort of flipped round recently, and the thing I thought I might say that would be slightly different uh, is about the David Lewis idea of plurality of worlds and the philosoph philosophical idea that um, in a universe of, of sort of infinitely bubbling up possibilities of infinite versions of worlds there is always a, a counter-world to, to this one. There is always a world that's very, very close, but at this particular moment, I kill you, or you kill me. Or so, you know. And philosophically, he says this is very useful. 
it's as useful as set theory is for maths because it means you can say that every statement, all those statements that trouble Bertrand Russell about, you know, the, the king of the golden mountain and all those kind of things, they, they apply to somewhere where there is a king of a golden mountain. Um, but what it means in terms of any kind of aim towards utopia is that you know that if you on this world move towards it and achieve it, then in order for there to be cosmic balance, uh, somewhere we will never know that you're not, not you're causing it, but you're pushing it in the other direction just because there has to be an infinity of worlds on either side. And he, David Lewis, I, I looked this up in the plurality of worlds, he argues that this doesn't make a moral point, that, that we should still essentially think local in terms of Earth, and therefore it's worthwhile thinking utopian thoughts, and mm. we can make it, and that is sort of meaningful. Um, and that's a particular thing, and, and, and David Lewis thinks that's good. But I think in a kind of properly nihilistic view, if you take that on board, a, any action that you have is morally neutral in the sense that, cosmically, there's, there's, there's an infinite variety of those. Yours is just one. I think that's a kind of manifesto for psychopaths, um, but it may be the truth. Speaking of this infinite variety, just a practical question to Samantha and Toby. Do you read a lot of uh, utopian, dystopian literature, or you think it kind of impedes your imagination? That's one question. And another aspect of the same question, if you do read, do you always think, oh, I would have done this better? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> this, is, this, is, this is the flaw and one, one shouldn't do this um, how, how, how Jen, could you open a little bit your laboratory for us yeah I mean um, I've, read, I've read some dystopian literature I mean not I, I have read Moore's Utopia I read it while I was at university I thought it was a bit dystopian to be honest but I suppose that's kind of the point like I remember um, isn't there a scene where they he sort of says that men and women should be presented to each other naked yeah, before they yeah. get married and I was yeah. like wow wow <laughs> that's just so not not utopian to me what <laughs> <laughs> doesn't it happen to, now you much <laughs> you much prefer Yorkshire in 1940 where you never see your wife without her clothes well, she I'm never right. sees you I'm not saying I need to see just, just, just normal really <laughs> yes, right. yeah. Ruskin yeah Skin, yeah, that, that was a good marriage. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah but so that was when I was kind of sort of um, I first started learning about it from an academic sense. Um, but the first time I encountered it was when I read The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood, um, which is uh, remains my favourite novel of all time because it's just so uh, you know there's so many things that I can actually picture happening from that. It's just like it just shows a reality that's so close to tipping over the edge. Um, and actually, I, I was able to speak to Margaret Atwood um, and in Edinburgh a few years ago, and she was, I was telling her my, my favourite scene um, was when the woman goes to take money out of her bank account and she can't. Mm-hmm. And interestingly, when she wrote it, it was in the 1980s, and we didn't have, they didn't have you know, electronic banking and stuff then, but now that could happen. And it was just, I'm, I'm convinced that she is the oracle, Margaret Atwood, everything she says is right. Um, so yeah that was kind of when I first encountered it and um, I I became fascinated by it I wasn't really aware that there was a genre that was specifically about worlds like that at that time and that was when I was about 18 Um, I'd also read The Day of the Triffids before that which I would call slightly more Mm post-apocalyptic I mean it is is dystopian but not in kind of an organised fashion it's very much just chaos like I feel like dystopia is more organised and then post-apocalyptic tends to be more chaotic I find 
Um, but yeah, so that was kind of when I first encountered it. I've I've read a few others like um, um, Ishiguro's Never Let Me Go. Mm. Um, I I don't think I've ever thought like I could do that better. I mean, I <laughs> I, I I guess because my dystopia is quite different and it's not it's because it is combined with fantasy it's it's maybe a little bit more kind of free form i can do a bit more in terms of just you know i can just say oh well it's a fantasy world it's fine um so yeah no i don't think i've ever thought that in particular but there's certainly ways that i would have maybe liked to try the same concept and see how it came out like i would love to write a similar world to the handmaid's tale where women are you know relegated to being a second class just but i don't think anyone could do it better than she could so i'm not going to try it. But, you, but you don't think that it's kind of uh, restricts your imagination because when you start doing you immediately think okay this have already been has already been oh, done yeah. somewhere yeah this, also already touched upon there. Oh no, so absolutely. When actually, I was at I was at Oxford a, a couple of years ago because um, it's where I studied, and I was asked to do an alumni event. And mm-hmm. um, a very nice man stood up and was like, um, "Isn't your book just the the chrysalids by John Wyndham?" And I was like, um, I've, "I haven't read it." <laughs> and he was like, "Yeah, but it's the same thing." And I was like, "Okay." Um, <laughs> I was like, I've read, I've read Day of the Trippers. I haven't read the Chrysalids. I swear to God, I haven't read it. And he was like, Oh, it's just the same. You know, it's like people mind readers being persecuted by the government. I was like, Okay, sorry, um, but I hadn't read it. And I think, I think that it's but, not just the same. Okay, <laughs> I didn't think. I, I did look it up afterwards because I was like yeah. paranoid, and I know it didn't look the same at all. Um, but I think, I think, interesting. My tutor fortunately stepped in because I just completely lost the ability to speak, and he. Was <laughs> and he, he was like, you know, it's, and it's, it's something that I've taken forward is that if you, I think every idea has been done. You have to accept this as a writer. You have to accept that pre- there are no original ideas left. We've been writing for hundreds of years. But every writer's take on something is going mm-hmm. to be absolutely unique because only they can bring their perspective to it. So, yeah, I, I, I kind of tend to try and avoid things in the same genre if I can, just in case. And the same applies to fantasy. If I know that there's a book about clairvoyance, I tend not to read it. Mm-hmm. Um, but at the same time, I think you do have to accept that, you know, your idea has been done. So, And if, if, if you thought, if you, if you started off your writing career thinking, like oh maybe I shouldn't do this idea you'd be paralyzed by fear because you just wouldn't you know you wouldn't ever write anything because you'd assume that it's already been done so by default any specialist in literature would be a bad writer well, I hope no. I, uh, no, because if they accepted that, <laughs> but if they accepted that, it's fine. But you know, it's a, as a personal choice, I, I generally we tend to yeah, t- tend to yeah. God, there's so there's so many things there. I think in in ter- in terms of the the nothing new possible under the sun. I I think what is interesting to do, perhaps, is to, is to, for me anyway, to think about dead genres. So, for example, Hospital, mm. I called that a dream vision. Now, the dream vision is oh, a dead is a dead genre in the oh. sense that yeah. uh, it's it's not one with uh, with a section in W. H. Smith. So, you know, you can't go. Well, I've got my um, paranormal romance. I've got my dream visions here. I wish um, we did. I wish we did. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it has it has sort of certain rules. Someone falls asleep in a garden. Um, they they dream a dream of of uh, a world, a heaven, uh, a city, um, and and there are certain defunct uh, tones, almost the kind of bawdy or the or, or the tones of the 18th century, or the, and it seems to me, why don't we use them? It, it, personally, I feel utopia is one of those things that seems 
very impossible to write in terms of expertise because if you want to world build convincingly okay how do you you, you have the question of language are you going to develop your own language uh, Delillo in this one he's, he says he's basically got scientists working on a language that's going to be as accurate as maths now I would say that's probably a very old tope in utopian literature is the idea that a perfected language that is closer to um, Euclid yeah uh, it, it, but it's, that's not language um, I would say that this is the closest thing that I've read recently it's non-fiction uh, the World Without Us by Alan Weissman. Has anyone read this or heard of this? It's essentially, uh, it's essentially about collapse. And it's, it imagines the world. It doesn't say the rapture um, happened, will happen, but what would happen if all humans disappeared? So what would happen to petrochemical inst- installations? What would happen to New York? I mean, it's, and it's absolutely fascinating how soon New York would flood, how soon New York... Would, would, would collapse, how much water comes out of the subway system and how maintained our environment is. But it's utopian in the sense that it goes back to no place because human beings are what gives place to, to space. And I, I think to, what's interesting for me to try and think about it is whether the creation of place is destructive of environment, is destructive of space. Is, is, is the moment that humans learn to light a fire, is it basically over for us? Cheery. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but, uh, it seems that a lot of science is involved in this. Does, does the writer have to... Well, have we live in a technological, a technological present, and it's, yeah. if you start trying to get away from that, the prob- I think you start retrogressing into things that are quite discredited. Uh, but don't you think that then uh, you need to have some substantial background in science and technology, otherwise you will always have this fear when I got it right because somebody is going to read it and say it's complete nonsense? That's why I write fantasy. <laughs> <laughs> I have no scientific background. <laughs> no, but your, your thing about whether, whether an expert in literature would be a bad writer, and, and you dodge that one. I, I won't say yes, all of them. But I think scientists who want to cover their ass and not make, because scientists, this is how they, they express themselves, not to make any statement that can't be backed up. Um, even if you go to really hard SF, it's impossible to do fiction within the bounds of a scientific paper that's peer-reviewed. So I would say yes, scientists negate themselves as writers of fiction, necessarily. Um, but I don't think you need to know, because for me, the, the, uh, let's, the, if you think back to the Millennium Dome, and then you flash back to... Um, Crystal Palace. Someone could have walked into Crystal Palace and been technologically wowed. The average person, they would have seen things that they'd have, I've never seen this before. No one walked into the Millennium Dome and thought, I've never seen this before, because you, it was more exciting to walk into the Apple Store. <laughs> James, James, you were wowed. Okay. James Bond, his gadgets are rubbish. We've got all his gadgets. None of them are any good. If you go back to what Roger Moore had or Sean Connery, they were well beyond what people could afford to buy or possess. Mm-hmm. It, and in order to imagine anything 
properly advanced, I think you need to go beyond consumer products that are available now or existing science, really, uh, unless you're doing um, mundane SF, in which case, fine. But what's yes, I was going to ask for, mm. in terms of uh, classics, mm. Huxley was well educated, mm. In science, Wells wasn't. Uh, well, how? Uh, he was, of course. Yes, um, but not uh, if, as well as. I mean, he had a he had a BSc. I mean, it's the first oh. English writer, probably the first of any writer, to have a BSc, and he studied under Huxley and so on. But I think what's interesting is that what counts is what works on the page, really, and um, I mean some of the classic things in Wells not only are not good science but he certainly would have known they weren't good science like um, you know uh, how he describes the time machine well, of course he doesn't describe it you know, he, he gives you one or two features on it uh, and some of them make sense and that's what you remember, some you probably don't remember and they don't make any sense I mean the Wells' time machine has little dials which are whizzing round to show how far he's travelling into the future, how many years are passing. And, uh, I mean, you, can't, you just can't begin to think about that. I mean, how fast would these... You know, he, he says it's a kind of minute hand. Well, how fast would that have to be going down, you know? Um, plus, uh, you can't even assume that the measurement of time stays the same. It's all relative, isn't it? You know, the measurement of, of time depends on the orbit of the Earth around the sun, and that's changing as you go into the far field, so on and so forth. And, of course, Wells knew this, but um, in a way, you know, you have to be brilliant, I think, at folk science, you might call it science, which will convince your readers that you sound rather scientific, rather impressively scientific, and he does a lot of that. Um, you can... I don't think it's, it, it's possible, as Toby said, to write um, science fiction that nobody can find any holes in. And, uh, it, you know, it's not a good idea to try beyond a certain point either. You know, it may be a good idea if you don't know about science yourself to ask people who do, you know, and, and, and a lot of writers have done that. But beyond a certain point, you would want to disregard some of the, you know, objections you heard because... What matters is, you know, the ordinary reader. It's not the scientific specialist. But he's more scientific in the time machine than he is in modern utopia, where they just fall down a crevasse and they're in the utopian <laughs> world. Yeah, that's well, maybe that is scientific. I don't yeah. know, but I mean, yeah. falling. But yeah. uh, it's it's, a, it's he's using the genre in two different directions slightly. Is he or in yeah, one, he yeah, wants I to mean, get to the world? That's yeah, the point. I mean, I. I think he's more scientific in the time machine possibly than in any of his, even the other science fiction works like The War of the Worlds. And yet, as I'm saying, if you look closely at it, you know, um, but nobody does. I mean, why do we go um, almost a million years into the future and find forms of architecture which instantly remind us of the classical European past? You know... You're not supposed to ask those questions. Well, that's your point about the drink. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I made a point earlier that in, you get far future novels, you know, where everything's been reinvented, but when a guy 
or a cyborg or whatever has a hard day he goes down to the cyber bar and has a cyber whiskey and <laughs> tells the cyber barman of his cyber troubles and says oh just, just, just go back to the hard SF please yes. They go to oxygen bars, which are a real thing that's happening now. And as far mm. as I can tell, they are completely and utterly pointless, have no obvious health benefits, but people still go and spend money in them. I thought that is the perfect yeah. thing. Sounds like whiskey I mean, bars. I, that, I, I've heard there are some... <laughs> But it's not like it's they're kind of touted as being these kind of miracle things sometimes. And like I was like, okay, this sounds like a reasonably good alternative to alcohol. But I just I don't know. I was kind of glad that I had that rule in the world where they where they didn't have alcohol because otherwise I probably would have been tempted to just send them all down the pub. And it just wouldn't it just wouldn't have the same feel to it at all. I was wondering this, this question of the family, which crops up in science fiction and dystopian novels especially uh, the, the writers, or maybe the utopians too have a problem with the family do they? Uh, well I suppose the, I mean the classic simple image of utopia is you know um, free speech free money and free love isn't it mm. um, that was something about the utopian genre which obviously leads people to question usually to jettison the family and we're all used to the terms which, you know, the two adjectives which instantly come to mind before the word family are nuclear and bourgeois, aren't they? So obviously yeah. utopia will go beyond that. Um, why is not always clear. Um, and, and, and some of the famous utopias have kept the family, but again, why? I mean, it, it seems to me a question that... Utopian writers often haven't really wanted to ask, partly because, um, you know, it's very difficult to write about a world with families that will seem completely different from ours, isn't it? Uh, some science yeah. fiction writers yeah. have, have, have done that, but usually with extraordinary biological uh, innovations, you know, or you can write about a future in which we have a kind of beehive structure and there's a queen bee... Mm. And, you know, a lot of drones. Um, that was done in the 19th century. W.H. Hudson did it. Mm. But um, very difficult to get away from the family, actually. It's a family in the bone season, um, structured I, family, is it? Um, yeah, kind of. I mean, it's not... Uh, the bone season is not so far into the future that I think that sort of things like that would have collapsed. Like, it's set in the year 2059. So I, I, did, I didn't... A lot of the stuff in my books is sort of reasonably similar to now because 2059 is not yeah. that far away. You know, many of you, it's it's not unthinkable. So I, I do, I do find that in I kind of write slightly more young adult fiction though, and I do find that in the genre we do all tend to kill off at least one parent. And I can't figure out quite why. <laughs> um, I think I think it's because it's kind of difficult if you're sort of in a dystopian environment. I think parents are kind of a narrative inconvenience yeah. in a way. Um, so um, pa so Paige's mother is, is dead, um, and her, she's very distant from her father. Um, so she does have kind of a, an odd idea of family because she kind of associates family more with the criminal group that she works for um rather than her actual biological family but so she kind of she kind of develops many families i suppose as she as she travels through the book toby you addressed the question of the limited gene pool i think and very 
impressively early. In, in Journey into Space. Yeah, yeah well, uh, yeah, the, I suppose I, did, I didn't consciously try to mm. d- destroy the family, but I'm rather glad I did. Because <laughs> I didn't... Obviously, if you, sent, if you sent 100 people into space, this is the idea, so, so a stable population of 100 to get to another planet, if they were families that would limit the gene, gene pool quite a lot, but it would also cause a lot of domestics and stuff on the, in, the, in your spaceship. So I, I basically had a, a widened gene pool where, where there was um, a gene bank on the, or a kind of sperm bank or something on the spaceship so that everyone could uh, not become inbred within a short space of time. Um, but I, I think it's the, the limits of... Firstly, it's the limits of the imagination. It's very hard to imagine different social structures that that are stable and and work. Um, But also, well, I think the interesting thing you said about narrative inconvenience is is that um, with with either utopia or dystopia, what story can you tell? What are the narrative conveniences? Well, either you you tell the story of it being made or the story of it breaking apart. Mm. Usually it's the story of it breaking apart. Utopia is stable. Mm. There are, there are um, rebels who, who destroy it or work to destroy it and it's saved. Or dystopia seems perpetual and rebels, you know. Or, or is someone just being a functionary going to their job Doing their daily thing in that in, um, I teach creative writing. That's not a story, um, and that's not a narrative convenience. <laughs> Stories aren't routines. Stories aren't accounts of someone's average everyday existence. There are examples of storytelling about that, but then I think the event has been shifted into the language. So Nicholson Baker's The Mezzanine is about a guy's oh, lunch yeah, hour, yeah. but the event is the closeness yeah. of the observation. That's the unusual thing. But but uh, a something has to happen and the problem is that you're looking at um, societies which are meant to be achieved So, and you're talking about something that happens with the whole society for it to be a story about it rather than just a little bit of it therefore you, you limit yourself and I would say that if you ask me whether, whether I, I read uh, dystopia I would say I read a lot of it I read a lot of it in students' work that I teach, and I read a vast amount of it, a huge amount of it, in applications. And I would say that there is a stereotypical novel, which is uh, very close to The Children of Men by P.D. James. It is a a biological dystopia in which women's bodies and reproduction is the issue. And I see that repeatedly. And it is also like Margaret Atwood's. It's very interesting. You mentioned can you really teach how to write a good novel? You talk a novel. A good novel, yes, I can teach to write a good novel. (laughs) It's my job. <laughs> no, I've I've had this one. I I'm, I'm, I feel like that I'm going into Zizek mode again. But I've I've had this one. I came up with an answer. If people say can creative writing be, be taught, I will say come along, read our read the, the the work that is submitted by six random students um, before they attend our course and read their graduating work and then come back and tell me I haven't taught them anything. It can be summarised. Very briefly in, well, I've um, given people a hint. A story isn't a routine. Um, no, I, uh, there, there's lots of things. In, t- in terms of uh, writing, though, 
there are some particular things that some people have when they write that make readers love them, and that's not technical. And I think someone like Neil Gaiman, for some reason, makes uh, an incredibly powerful connection with the reader because there's something going on, on on the level, and I don't necessarily think it's morally neutral, but on the level of, I, I'm a good person, and you're a good person too, and we know that there's bad stuff out there, but essentially we, we are, are on the side of good. I think you get that in J.K. Rowling, I think you get that in Tolkien, uh, you, you get that in Tolstoy. Um, oh. and, and I think that that key thing can't necessarily be taught. Can you share a little bit with us your kind of views on this? Whether you can teach it. Yeah, um, I, or, do you think, or, or you think it's completely natural because you, well, you are natural. Um, I am. I mean, I, I never went to a class. Having said that, I think that you can, you can certainly teach it from a technical perspective and you can teach people what not to do, certainly. There's, there's things that you can teach. I think that you know, maybe you have to have a, a seed of kind of something to, to start with. Um, but yeah, I, th- I think I think it can be taught. It's just I think that it really depends on what kind of writer you are. Some people need a bit more direction. Some people just get lucky and they write something you know brilliant the first time they try. Um, this was my the Bone Season was my second novel. The first the first one I wrote um, was I started when I was about fifteen, and you know it wasn't very good. I still sent it to agents, and every single one said no, with good reason. But you know that was me. That was how I learned in a way because I learned through having my first practice novel mm-hmm. and then I took the mistakes I've made in that and I learned so I, I think it really just depends on what kind of writer you are you, you can go to a creative writing class or you can not, it just depends on the kind of yeah, your approach I think what, what's interesting to me is you read I would assume uh, in a way that taught you yeah. what happens in a novel and what's interesting to me in the work that I see for people that don't get on the course that I, I look for admissions is how slow things are often mm-hmm. and how little happens in the first ten pages. And I don't mean you start with a car chase or whatever, but you can have a character slowly get up to speed from a stable routine state and they'll have had interactions with one or two people. And, and that's just really not... The, the pace at which novels tend to happen. There are exceptions. But when I read pure genre novels that are submitted, similar thing too. That what, what seems to separate writers who would, would get a deal or, or, or um, take off is essentially they're juggling more balls earlier and, and in, a, in a more complicated pattern. Than, and they're giving the reader more very, very quickly... Um, and that can be literary novels too, um, and and that's you can't just teach someone to juggle with six balls. They have to learn with two, <laughs> and then three, and work up to it. But you can you can do it by reading as a writer and thinking, what do novels do? What 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 are you know? Why do I need to kill one of the parents? It seems like in fantasy or utopia or dystopia, this is this is not real. So that means anything is possible. Uh, that's, Just yeah. anything. Uh, so absolutely, you disagree. Well, that, I, 
No, because the human imagination is, uh, to yeah. call it yeah. that, is massively limited. And, and the oh, demonstration well. of that... I, I, I thought otherwise. The, no, the, well, the demonstration of that is, is cinema. Let's say... Yeah. Someone's, just, someone's just printed a book, I saw, which, which contains every possible kind of printable colour. It's like a massive colour pad, so you could point at it. And, and, and so you could... That's kind of all art. That's like the monkeys with the typewriters, in, in the sense that you could rearrange them. You could do that on a cinema screen. Anything that our retinas could take in, you could now put on a cinema screen. But I've hardly seen anything at the cinema on a screen that looks new, that I went, oh, wow, I haven't seen that before, rather than, oh, they've digitally done a bigger version mm. of the Gladiator movie. They've done a bigger mm. version. Yeah. It's mm. bigger, more things are moving, it's faster. It's Not new, but, but mm. new stuff mm. could be pictured... And um, I think, it, you know, you can go back to experimental films, birth of cinema, when cinema wasn't defined as a medium that told moving stories about yeah. heroes mm-hmm. and heroines. And, and you get a much more open picture of what could appear on a screen. And I think that the, the, when I say the human imagination, the storytelling, good storytelling, it pushes people towards telling the same story again and again and again. And it's very difficult to, yeah. to do that because if you write a bad story, it doesn't end up on the screen. Mm-hmm. Bad meaning doesn't give the satisfactions. It's a vicious cycle, isn't it? Cause in, in, I think other things, like in Hollywood, it's presumed, a lot of it is shaped by risk as well, I think. You know, they, they put out films that are similar to films they know have been successful. Mm. So they could put out more experimental films. And funny enough, when they do, it pays off. Like films like Inception and Avatar, the ones that, yeah. no, they're not, you know, like beyond the realm of the imagination but they are more they were certainly more experimental both visually and in terms of plot in terms of inception and they did really well so people are crying out for these but i think that hollywood is, is just too risk averse and it doesn't it just keeps putting out fast and furious 14.5 or whatever they've done and it's like, <laughs> <laughs> yes what but there wasn't that one in london come on they finally got down to business but you know what i mean like you know why do they why do they keep putting up the same thing over and over and i just think that they think that's what the audience wants and they don't seem to be noticing that the audience responds really well interstellar for example you know whenever things go big and interesting people do respond well are you in fact being filmed is there a project Uh, there is a project to film mine um i we have a screenwriter um that's as far as it's gone so far you um, haven't yet had john le carré's experience where he said it's like being a a cattle farmer seeing his prize cattle being turned into oxo cubes I'm really looking forward to it now. (laughs) Benedict Cumberbatch shaped Oxo cubes in his case, yes. No, yeah, I think, I mean, I have high hopes because I went with um, Imaginarium Studios, who are um, Andy Serkis, who played Gollum, his production company. And one of the reasons I was attracted to them was because they are very experimental with visual effects and motion capture and things. So um, I am hoping that if it gets made, it will be, you know, visually Mm. and, you know, a bit more experimental. So you have a hand in the some of the screenplay or... I have consultation yeah, rights. Yeah. Um, I, I've decided, I decided I didn't want to be involved in a screenplay because I've never written a screenplay in my life. Therefore, I don't see why I would be an expert in it. I would certainly like to look over and make comments, um, but I'm not going to try writing it at this moment. <laughs> There's a sort of film in Finding Myself, isn't there? Or is uh, it sound recording? All the not, that, not that this is a dystopian novel at all. But, um. No, there's... 
uh, to, there's a character who wants to write a Virginia Woolf novel but she's not a Virginia Woolf but she wants to have all these deep insights into what people are like so she decides instead to set up what's a bit like the Big Brother house and she invites people along and she says I'll write it, you'll, you'll be in my novel and, and she'll write all these wonderful perceptive things about marriage disintegration and what people do when they're on their own um, but she's set up it's it's like meant to be a panopticon. Oh, it's meant right, to be yeah, where, yeah. Uh, but then they find out that they're being filmed and they lock her in the, the viewing room. <laughs> um, just just as a thing, just as a thing. For next time you're in um, Euston Station, stand on the concourse and look around and see how many oh. CCTV cameras you can see. Mm-hmm. Try and count them. I think you'll lose count. It's quite incredible. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wrote that, or I started, and I'd only heard about Big Brother coming on telly, and um, then it then it came, and it. I think every novelist in the UK spent the entirety of the first season watching. You know, what do people do when they've they've forgotten they're being observed? But we've lost that entirely. That's that sense of uh, prurience, yeah, yeah. <laughs> basic decency. I think we need to. Do. Oh yes, I think we should open the floor now. You've all been very patient. You've been very patient. Yeah. Can we? Yes, I'm sure this a, open for some questions. Lots of, lots of questions everywhere. We have a question. Yeah. Yes. Are we waiting for a microphone? Yeah, we yes. should have a. I, there's one here. Okay. Yeah. Thank you. Can a utopia have economic growth? Oh, this is exactly the question I feared when I said yes to an event at the LSE. Do you want to define what sort of economic... I'm assuming that's a good oh, question, yeah, but... You free speech, free money and free love. Mm. Can free economics be involved in it? Or is mm. the idea of utopia simply static and therefore can't grow? No, it's... Uh, I mean, utopias these days are certainly not static, but there are huge problems, obviously, with economic growth. I mean, if uh, Brave New World actually is based on economic growth, um, and, you know, that's written into it, but Huxley, like many novelists, I guess, had not really thought through the, um, you know, the implications of that, I think. You didn't, you could start from a much lower population number in Brave New World. Yeah, but the population is, the population is increasing, and, you know, they have this cloning process, and they're developing the cloning process so they can produce more and more clones from the same basis, and, um, and that will produce greater prosperity, we are told. Well, that's economic growth, but, you know, um, I get the impression that society will have, um, fallen into anarchy long before that's realised anyway so no it's obviously a huge difficulty and then you have the second thing now that generally we tend to think now that economic growth is incompatible with an ecological future don't we Um, so uh, a 21st century utopia apart from Don DeLillo's which Probably doesn't economics doesn't probably enter it one way or the other. Apart from the fact that you have to be very rich, uh, it will almost certainly try to present a steady-state economy, I guess. But whether that can be done convincingly, who knows? Uh, who would like to? Yeah. 
I kept thinking I should have a question because it's expected, uh, but uh, oh, it seems all I have to say that is that increasingly in Danish, um, utopia has come to mean uh, impossible, unthinkable, can't be even be imagined. Uh, this uh, this whole discussion serves to to countervene that. I think the organisers should be uh, complimented for having having this discussion at all. That's all. I'm afraid. Hmm. I think the com- in the second row. Thank you very much for the very good discussion. I'd, I'd like to understand if there is a Western way of looking at utopia as happiness and our Eastern philosophy of utopia where we look more at equanimity. Sorry, I didn't catch the last word. The equanimity. Where equanimity. You know, it doesn't react, you know, I mean... Yeah. Well, that's, that was, would have been my answer, I think, to the, mm. to the question about growth, is that it would, it, you, are, you are having to have a balanced... Utopia will have to be bal- in balance. And my view of economic growth is it is, it is an imbalanced thing because it's, it's dependent upon things like inequalities of distribution where profit is made by the simple movement of uh, an item from from this location where it's cheap to this location where it's expensive i mean that isn't this the the anxiety about 3d printing that it will destroy the the economy of transportation which which paid for my my childhood my dad was an antique dealer who made money buying antiques in the north of england and selling them to richer people in london but but uh, in terms of I think that it's a big question. And I, I would say with the Dudlillo and a lot of um, what I would see as con- contemporary writing of, of, of lots of sorts is an engagement with East, uh, challenging Western ideas of s- selfhood even, which I think is crucial, um, with, with Eastern ideas. Or, and in my case, it will be Buddhist ideas. So it, you are more likely to achieve a utopian state if you don't have romantic individualists pursuing selfish goals of um, pleasure, of happiness that depends on their sexual gratification, on materialism. In other words, they, they would be more uh, monk or nun-like citizens than... than uh, traders i think it's a question of the definition of happiness actually and this is um you know that that sounds a fairly simplistic thing to say but if you look back at the roots in greek thought um aristotle's eudaimonia Mm -hmm. which is generally translated as happiness um is also translated in different ways um the fulfilled life for example, which might imply something very different. You know, um, happiness, in other words, is not necessarily to be conceived in the way that we tend to do today in the West as a kind of um, s- subjective glow. I mean, happiness is not the same as euphoria, if you like. 
By the way, I do like all these words which begin with EU, which are these <laughs> words. And they all have two very different sides. I mean, another one is eugenics, another one is euthanasia, but let's not get into that. Except, just briefly in passing, a lot of utopias around the turn of the 19th, 20th century would have been dependent on some idea of perfection of the race. I think every <laughs> utopia that's ever been written has some kind of eugenics written yeah. into it. I mean, the first thing you read in any utopia is these people are so beautiful. You know, they yeah. they have such good physique and so on. And uh, of course, what you were mentioning in Moore, is, it, it's clearly for eugenic reasons that yeah. you're supposed to be able to see your future partner naked, just as you if you're buying a horse. <laughs> And yeah, that's yeah. exactly what it felt like. Yeah. It felt like you were just, yeah. yeah. And we get the same thing in Plato's Republic. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, not, um, I mean, the mechanism is different, but eugenics are certainly present in Plato's Republic. But that point about the East, isn't it the samurai in Wells who are set up as being the ideal selfless figures? Yeah, the Japanese yeah. samurai. I mean, that. I don't know how much he understood. I mean, it, that gets one. Uh, yeah. Oh, there was a quite important book about the samurai that I think he'd read. That gets one into another question, which is um, the relation of um, militarism and utopia. Um, a utopia is supposed to be a peaceful world, but um, since you know humanity has all sorts of um, urges, not just to not just violent urges, not just urges to kill people, but other kinds of urges which are satisfied in a military setting. I mean, a lot of us have been watching War and Peace. He's very good on that. You know, the urge to distinguish yourself which has so often been um, realised in that way. And William James, the brother of Henry James, the philosopher, has this idea of the moral equivalent of war. Mm. And every modern utopia, I think, will try to provide some kind of moral equivalent of war. You know, everybody's always out playing games and Kim Stanley Robinson and, and so on and so forth. There has to be something. It's no accident it's called World of Warcraft online. Yeah. No one, no. <laughs> Any gamers? Yes, they are. <laughs> yes. I think, Toby, you've seen, I found you online saying that the novel's had it today and it won't last. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this, the, you, they've kind of come up with like questions where we can. You've had some real stinkers, you know, us to dismiss all academics as writers. Um, the novels, I, I think I said something along the lines that if I were 14 now, um, the chances are that I would be playing World of Warcraft or, or um, uh, Call of Duty or something like that uh, rather than being in my head. D developing the imagination to 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 to, to make up worlds, um, because it would be sufficient. It was what I wanted at that age. That and and novels demand, I think, um, us to alter our our relationship to time to the extent that we're patient enough to 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 sit with them. I mean, there was a hearing about virtual reality on, on the Today program the other day. One of uh, John Humphrey's, you know, always scintillating engagements with high tech. I remember when he was dismissing email. Um, as, as, <laughs> but but the, 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 the idea um, that immersive technologies will, will kill the novel is, is in some ways 
persuasive more than more than TV, more than uh, uh, radio. Um, and I think the, the the way people engage with the page, the way that someone takes in the information. How many people now who are studying, who are Fifteen, say, when they read a page, and they're used to Facebook more than the page, will follow an argument from the top left to the bottom right along the lines, rather than sc- scan it for clumps of information. Um, and that, I think, is a non-Western. That is, that uh, you know, the the idea of the linear uh-huh. goes all the way back to 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 we follow a line of argument. I think now it's much more the image cluster, the, the sensation, that, that kind of is thing. That, is that so new? I mean, we're getting rather away from utopia here, but I mean, um, it, like, I, mean I have to confess, it, it was not until I was a postgraduate student that I went to a lecture and realised I'd listened to every word of that lecture from beginning to end. And <laughs> reading is a bit <laughs> the same, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Yes. I. But. But to. I think a lot of people to give, the experience that they have of reading just any novel of 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 reading your novel, you need to sit down and 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 read Henry James, mm. and the 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 kind of oppression that people feel like oh this is expecting me to concentrate, on every word and hang on for the end of this sentence is like fifty words from the beginning. How do you expect me to negotiate that? Now, I love Henry James, but I, f- I find he demands yeah. that I slow down. And I think uh, slow down from the state I'm in when I've just come off Twitter. <laughs> Where you will find me as at tobylit.com. I welcome you all, friends. I think, Uh, I was just going to comment on the recent death of David Bowie as a person in America, at any rate, who introduced some ideas about space and about uh, utopia. And uh, I don't know how his death impacted you here, but in America it had a tremendous impact on young people who grew up with Major Tom to ground control and the Ziggy Stardust. So I just make that as a comment. Um, I, I, this is where I confess horribly that I wasn't actually very... I didn't know a lot about David Bowie. This is, I, I feel terrible. It's actually my, it's my, I think it was more my mum's generation who were more, um, I'm not saying, I'm not saying that it's not our generation, but my, when my mum was told about David Bowie, she was like, oh, young people today think they know David Bowie. Um, I, I, did, I, I did know Ground Control to Major Tom, um, but I, I don't really feel qualified to speak about it because I always feel that, you know, it's, it's just I don't know I think I think I'd be being a bit false because I just didn't know so much about it. Um, I'm yeah, so <laughs> <laughs> I'm, per- I'm perfect. No, um, I think that to look at the the way that someone I imagine listened to Ziggy Stardust, um, it's or, or the fact that he Dobo was a one-hit wonder. If we, if we forget the Narfing Gnome. Um, with with that ground control to Major Tom um, as a dystopian vision 
keyed in to the moon landing, which yeah. was this moment of human achievement, for undeniable human achievement. And yet his vision of it is of loneliness, isolation, and, um, and, and I think Ziggy Stardust is the same thing. Five years. We've got five years. This isn't, this isn't a, a, a shiny vision, but the vision that he presented uh, in terms of his sexuality, in terms of what he wore, um, through appearing on Top of the Pops or whatever, changed so many people's lives in a sense that they thought, I do not have to be as I am, sat watching. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I think that that was a continuation. I think one of the things that's forgotten about the 1960s, uh, the kind of hippie ideal, is, is hippie men. It is a, it is a radical uh, assault on the idea of how a male should be or dress. And it was slightly utopian in that it was not, not only feminised, but it was just other, it was different. And if you look at photos, say, from Woodstock, people aren't just typical hippies. There, there are lots of variations, people trying stuff out. Some of them look a bit like punks from later. Some of them look like, you know, agrarian farms, whatever, in smocks. It's, it's, quite, it's quite varied. It's a lot less regimented than we are now. And I think that that was utopian in the sense that a lot of people would say it opened their eyes in a similar way to what can a man be? And, and I think that that is, has gone in the sense, maybe there are some people out there that, that look at Lady Gaga. I mean, she'd love to think so. But, and think, mm-hmm. I can be. Mm. But that's more about makeup tutorials than anything... Um, visionary and I think he, ach- he did achieve something radical and good tunes mm-hmm. well then, uh, in this case I just one last question from me and, um, well actually not from me because uh, I would like to dissociate myself from this question but I I uh, I just kind of uh, I see it so much in critical literature uh, where it's said that uh, utopian fiction is uh, characteristically written by optimists where dystopian fiction is characteristically written by pessimists Ah. so uh, what do you think about it? It is a curious thing isn't it that um, you know not many writers have written both utopias and dystopias, but some have, and the two obvious are Wells and Aldous Huxley, because Huxley writes Brave New World, and then much later he writes Island, which unfortunately is a very much inferior novel. (laughs) But it does seem that, um, you know, um, on the whole... You're a writer of utopias, or you're a dystopian, and I, I so hence the question. I mean, <laughs> I, I would argue though that like, isn't every dystopia a utopia in a way? Because every most dystopias are a utopia gone wrong. I mean, in my yeah. books, the 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 government's tagline is "No safe place" because they are creating a safe place, but at the expense of the people they're persecuting. So you could argue that you are kind of, when you're writing a dystopia, certainly, you are both a dystopian and a utopian writer. Mm -hmm. However, I will say that I am generally a pessimist and I do write dystopian fiction, so... (laughs)
I, I have a I have a quote to finish up with because I think this this ties in with that, um, which I was going to use. There, Roger Luckhurst, or a colleague of mine at Birkbeck, has done a book, Zombies: A Cultural History, mm-hmm. and one of my arguments here was that the zombie. Uh, genre is utopian because it, it levels out all social differences <laughs> everyone just eats everyone else until <laughs> there are no humans left it, there was a review in the LRB by Michael Newton called The Thrill of It All and he said it would appear that we also like to see everything destroyed, Philadelphia overrun by a zombie army Atlanta's skyscrapers burned out anything seems better than a thousand years of Tesco's <laughs> <laughs> This is a marvelous note to finish our session. I would like to thank profusely our speakers because it was most interesting discussion. Thank you very much. Thank you.